0: to Bible! I think you just hurt some people's ears, bro.
1: You don't think they appreciate that intro? I think it caught them off guard. So if your ears are now hurting...
0: I'm sorry. I even backed away from the mic though. Dude, you
1: were so loud. I
0: bet you our listeners love it. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. Welcome to Let's Read the Bible, listen, everybody.
1: You've got you've got our, our regular listenership that they have a method and a system and a routine down. You just threw that all out of the water the way you started the podcast, which is fine. Like sometimes we got to keep them on our toes. But here's the deal, dude. Players, I, it's funny,
0: beloved listeners. The seasons are changing. We've gone from summer to fall, and I've got I've got the seasonal sads. I've you he know does I like, he was just telling. About a little a little lower energy so i felt like i had to i had to manufacture you had to some, overcompensate. some excitement coming into this podcast just you know because i don't want you don't want you want to give it your best
1: because it would have been Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode versus,
0: hey, everybody. (sniffs) Exactly. So so funny. Well, if if this is your first time listening, sorry about that. Uh, We are the Let's Read the Bible podcast, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. And if you would like to follow along with us, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have that plan available on our website,
1: grove.church. Yes. And if you can hear us uh, and your ears are not ringing still, uh, we would love to also take time as much as we can week over week to answer questions that you may have, whether it's uh, listening along with us, maybe we spark a question uh, through our banter and dialogue about scripture, uh, or maybe you're reading something and it just it, it, it's confusing and you want some clarity or some insight. We're not scholars by any means, but we love the Bible. We love talking about it, and we'll do the research the best we can to answer those questions. So I would love for you, if those questions come, to send them to us. There's two ways you can get them to us. One is the simple email. Uh, The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question. Or the second way is direct message us on Facebook. We are the Grove Church in Washington State uh, and would love for you to send us those questions.
0: As Aaron said, we're not
1: scholars. As, he, as, as, he sked, as I did sked.
0: We are not doctors. We are not masters, but we are both bachelors.
1: Yes, we are bachelors. I'm, I'm married, not like bachelor married in that relational sense, but I do have a bachelor's degree as you, well as does Evan. There you go. Although I think yours is like more of a smart degree than mine. Mine's
0: a bachelor's of science. Is yours a bachelor's of arts? Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> mine is in youth ministry. <laughs>
0: oh, there you go. Mine's in, what is mine in? Biblical and theological studies. Yeah, That's, see, more, so gen, I,
1: more general. So I've said this for a long time. Evan's the smart one. I'm the one that brings a little bit of banter and humor. So uh, we make a good duo that way. Nonsense. All right. We get to start two new books this week.
0: And it's going to be interesting because we're, I, I feel like we, we were, com- we're coming out of doing the epistles and the minor prophets where we're just rapid fire through really yeah, small true. books. For this week, we're doing two books. Next week, we're doing two books. The week after is one book. We will be in. So from the middle of October through the end, we are just in Jeremiah with some Psalms sprinkled in. So we're going to be...
1: Jeremiah is a legitimate book though. Like, oh yeah. It's... I remember reading it, I like, think a couple of years ago and really studying through it. It was pretty, it's pretty incredible. So that'll be a fun one.
0: To be clear, we don't mean that other books of the Bible are illegitimate. <laughs> it's just very, it's very long.
1: <laughs> no, just Jeremiah. is the only legitimate Bible. <laughs> there's a bunch Bible of stuff.
0: Uh, but this week we are going to talk about Ecclesiastes, which is the, thir- the fourth wisdom book that we're tackling. And because we haven't done Song of Solomon yet, I believe. So I, I could be wrong on
1: that. Because in chronological order from the canon... This is the fourth wisdom literature. Right. Yep. Song of Solomon is the fifth.
0: It's a good time. It used to It used to hold the title of my favorite book. Yes. Of the Bible. When I first
1: met Evan 10 years ago, this was his favorite book. And I'm like, you are such an old man. It was- uh, And the more I got to know him, he's still an old man. In so. high school, I just, I was
0: going through the Bible in a year and I got to Ecclesiastes and the opening line was, you know, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. <laughs> and I was like, okay, tell me more. This is interesting. And so- <laughs> Evan's like, ooh- I dove, deep. I dove into it and I was like, what basically what Ecclesiastes is doing and what it's trying to say is really interesting to me. Um, obviously, Job has kind of taken that place in my heart, but Ecclesiastes will always be, you know, it'll always be my first love. I was going to say, always your first <laughs> love, bro. <laughs> uh, and so it's it's really concerned with the seeming futility of life. And what meaning can be found from it? And so, it, it is not an exaggeration to say that ecclesi- the main question of Ecclesiastes is what is the meaning of life. Yeah. So it's it's you know it di- it dives right in. Um, it's technically anonymous, but most tradition points to it being written by Solomon toward the ends of his life. Um, I don't know of any real scholarly tradition that. Uh, that pins it to anyone else. Yeah. They, would, they would just say it was just some random person yeah. then.
1: So. Most, most attribute it to Solomon, which is where Evan and I both land. Evan yep. or Evan's the author. No, Solomon's the author, the <laughs> writer of this. So, so Evan wishes so is, he was the author.
0: You ever notice how you didn't know about Ecclesiastes <laughs> before 1992? <laughs> yeah. There you go. Uh, so yeah, there's, and here's the other thing. There's ways that you can outline the book. There's really no definitive way to do it, so I don't, I don't, I don't mess around with it. <laughs> I think it's it's one of those things. Like I'm not even gonna touch it. Well, and there's some books that like they really do straight. Like uh, Jonah comes to mind, where each chapter is its own section. Mm-hmm. Like there's almost I shouldn't say almost. There is no other way to, yeah. to outline Jonah than the than those four. Um, Well, it reads
1: almost like, I mean, literally like, um, I think we did a series on Ecclesiastes years ago as a church, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it literally, we had a rocking chair on the stage, I remember, or we wanted to, but it literally reads like, you're spending time with your grandpa and he's reflecting on his life and there's no rhyme or reason to his method. Right. It's just, here's what I've learned. and. And things come up. It's
0: just, here's all my stories. Here's what I did. Here's my topics. So we're not going to try and outline it. We're just going to go chapter by chapter and describe what happens in all of those things. So Ecclesiastes chapter one, let's just, you know, let's just see how this starts off. So this is the ESV translation, which is not the translation I read it in first. So you'll notice that the word meaningless is replaced with vanity, but you get the picture. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and goes around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things to come among those who come after. All right. Sweet. Thank you. <laughs> just a real... So Essentially, The whole thing is just about... Yeah, my life is meaningless. You yep. know, it's all it's all vain. Uh, another famous saying from Ecclesiastes, it's all striving after the wind. And he's talking about the the circular nature of the world, right? He's saying like everything appears as if it is working towards an end goal but it's not really true and so he uses the example of and he, we, where we live we have nothing but i shouldn't say nothing but but we have a ton of streams and rivers that go into the ocean that mm-hmm. is where and there's salmon that come up to them in in this time of year which is really cool to see um but yeah like he says the streams never actually run dry it's not as if there's a set um body of water at the top that is going to run out and eventually it's all going to go into the ocean. It's all it's cir- circular because there's cycles. Obviously, we know, you know, condensation, that's how all of it works. Um, and he's talking about how there's so many things in life that look like they're terminating at a point, but they're just endless cycles that will never actually be stopped. So now not that that's a particularly hopeless thing. I think that's actually kind of a beautiful thing <laughs> about how God created the world. But yeah, Solomon, he's kind of, you know, he's just a little bit bummed out. Um, and it really doesn't get
1: any better over the next few chapters. Uh, <laughs> and this is not the seasonal sadness that Solomon's navigating either. Yeah. Just this, to be clear. Yeah, this is. And I guess we should. It's sh- kind of fitting that we started off with your seasonal sadness and we jump right into Ecclesiastes. So.
0: I should have just started off with vanity of vanities, <laughs> listeners. This podcast is vanity. <laughs> um but I also think, I think we do, we, it is important to, I guess, remind us a little bit of who Solomon is because we, we should have done that. Um, Solomon, remember, is the son of David. So he is... And he is king over what... David
1: it, and Bathsheba, just to be clear.
0: Yes, David and Bathsheba. Um, if you opened up a history book and paid no attention to worshiping God and the religious health of the people of Israel. Solomon's reign is the golden age of Israel. It is when they're at their most prosperous. Um, he is the most respected king, probably uh, in terms of global respect of other leaders of any of the other kings. It's, it's just an incredible time. He's incredibly wise. However, what undergirds this time is that Solomon himself is not a righteous king. King, he's not he's not a righteous man. He starts off really strong, Mm -hmm. um, and then it just kind of goes all downhill. And then, if he is the author of Ecclesiastes, this is evidence that he ends it strong, at least, or at least he comes to realize the error of his ways. Um, And so, he's incredibly wise. He's incredibly prosperous, and he just does whatever he wants. And so, like, he has seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines or did i reverse that 300 wives and 700 goats yes. yeah that's what it was <clears throat> but yeah he he just and he builds houses for all of them he builds this extravagant temple he builds an extravagant palace like Solomon's life is essentially a life of excess and self-indulgence and now he's gotten to the end of it and he's reflecting on all of it and it is very interesting that the first words that you hear him say are it's all vanity it's all it's all pointless um so over the next few chapters to begin the book he discusses the vanity of wisdom which is really interesting because Solomon is the wisest man ever and proverbs and really all the wisdom literature praises this idea of wisdom is something that we should strive it is one of the greatest things in life and ecclesiastes will get to get to that in a little bit but he does talk about how um, the more wisdom you have, the more frustrated you are with the world, hmm. and so and it's kind of an interesting way to look at it. The, the exact quote is in much wisdom. In much wisdom comes vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So basically, you know, and I, I kind of think of it in terms of when you're a kid, you don't really li- life is good. Yeah. You know what I mean? like oh, yeah. you're, you're sheltered. From, the innocence, the yeah, innocence of childhood. You're sheltered from a lot of the bad things. Like there's so many things that like, I, I even remember like my parents will talk to me about, like, you know, like some hard things that were happening when I was a kid. I had no idea because, you know, your parents are not sitting you down and talking through all these things. But yeah. like, um, if you're if you're a kid and money's tight, you really aren't super aware of that, or at least like in, in the context of like, actually how like dangerous that can be. Yeah. Um, all these different situations, there's an innocence to it. And I think Solomon's right, where the more you know, the more you're kind of sad, <laughs> just from going out and observing the world as well. Um, he talks about the vanity of self-indulgence, and so again, Solomon took every, anything that he wanted. Essentially, there was all there was nothing off limits for Solomon, um, and he just found it all meaningless. Uh, he talks about, and this is really interesting, the vanity of living wisely, which again, theme of the wisdom literature is live wisely. Yeah. And, and Ecclesiastes will get into that, um, but he talks about. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like you're just going to die. Yeah. Like yeah. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how wise you live. It doesn't matter how great of a person you are. You're just going to die. And so is the fool. So is the idiot who just lost all of it. Like you didn't live with any sort of wisdom at all. You're both just going to die. And then toil. And this is my favorite one because this is obviously a paraphrase, but like, yeah, what's the point of working hard? Your idiot kid is probably going to ruin it for you (laughs) anyway. (laughs) So, Which is the whole thing, right? He's like, you work hard, you're going to... And I feel like, I don't know, does... Solomon, again, he's at the end of his life. Is he looking at Rehoboam and just being like, oh, this guy, <laughs> like he's like, I know this kid is going to just screw up so bad. And listeners, if you don't remember, he does. Rehoboam, yeah, is, Rehoboam, absolutely. Rehoboam is the worst. So, um, and then it ends on this, this kind of, we'll call it a section, ends on, on this note. This is Ecclesiastes chapter, the end of chapter two. It says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat, drink, drink, And find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. So you're starting to see this theme that's developing through the writings of Ecclesiastes, where, um, there's kind of this this nihilistic, and this is why Ecclesiastes is so hard to interpret, mm-hmm. because there's a nihilism in so much of the book, and, and what I mean by that is essentially meaninglessness of life. So when you talk about someone being nihilistic, it's essentially it's it's a um, it's the it's the logical conclusion of atheism, I guess is the way I would put it. Whereas if there is no God, if there is nothing above ourselves, then life is meaningless and, and nihilism is kind of the, the acceptance of that philosophical mm-hmm. truth. Yeah.
1: And the highest good in that is I'm just going to enjoy my life and then I die and it's all over. Like, I'm just going to do whatever I can. Uh, and so having that pr- belief, it is a like eat, drink and be merry right? because tomorrow you're going to die. Big yeah, deal.
0: Exactly. Uh, and so I, I kind of compared it, I, this is somewhere in my notes, so I'll just bring it in now, but I kind of compare it to Ecclesiastes kind of being like, the scene from It's a Wonderful Life where George Bailey is shown what the town would be like if he never lived, where we're kind of being shown, here's what life would be like if there was no God. Here is the philosophical hmm. conclusion of there is no creator, there is no God, it's just us, it's all vanity. So if he's I- not
1: seen It's a Wonderful Life. Evan just summarized it right
0: there. Yeah. What are you doing? If you it's, haven't seen it, <laughs> it's like the greatest Christmas movie of all time. Come on. I don't know if I'd call it a Christmas movie. Anyways. I, well, here's you and I,
1: I agree. <laughs> I agree with you, but
0: in the cultural definition of Christmas movies. Okay. Cause,
1: Cause we're on this tangent color or black and white. Have you seen it? In I color? Go, I have seen it in color. I'm a big black and white guy. That's Cause you're an old man. Also, this is you're a, an old soul. That's what it is.
0: You're right for this. This is a tangent, but
1: my hot take
0: Christmas movie, white Christmas is not a Christmas movie.
1: I agree with you wholeheartedly. If you heartily. called
0: that, if you called that movie snow in Vermont. It would You wouldn't have yes. to change a
1: thing. Well, that not there a flyer on the train that says something about Vermont, like snow or whatever? Vern, I think, I'd, I want to say yes, but, yeah. but old, it also was called something different before it was called White Christmas too. So fun fact, oh yeah, I just forget. Oh yeah,
0: because it's the Bing Crosby, holiday uh, in, sorry. Yeah, all right.
1: Right. <laughs> totally different tangent side, so, but guys, just so you know, Christmas is coming, so get ready. We're yeah. in October now.
0: All right. Chapter three of Ecclesiastes, to get back to it, uh, it starts off with, if you've ever heard the song Turn, Turn, Turn from the Birds. That is, have you not heard that? No.
1: Really? No. Sing it for
0: me. It's like, um, (laughs) for everything there is. I don't know the tune actually, but like the chorus is like a time to plant and a time to reap. It's literally, they okay.
1: They're just quoting Ecclesiastes.
0: The the whole song, the entirety of the song is Ecclesiastes Who the heck are the birds anyways? I don't know. They're not like a famous band. I just know the song because like- I want to Google them right now, but
1: I'm in the middle of a podcast.
0: Listeners, if you are listening at home, feel free to pause and listen to the- bird song, because you're it's Ecclesiastes 3. It is literally that, that's what it is. Um, and it speaks to this idea that there is a time and a season for everything. So, this is where we get the idea of there is a time uh, to sow, and there is a time to reap, there is a time to plant, there is a time to harvest, there is a time to mourn, and there's a time to rejoice, there's a time to live, there's a time to die. And it's, it's talking about, again, n- not looking at life as chasing one thing or the other, that there's going to be parts of life that are really painful, and there's going to be parts of life that bring bring a lot of joy. And it's foolish to chase one or the mm-hmm. other and it's it's a I I heard joy explained this way where it's in the midst of sadness and happiness you don't ever lose joy because you even find joy in in the sadness of life because it reflects on on the greater truth of who God is. Yeah. And I think I, I don't think that's the exact thing of what Ecclesiastes is getting at, but I think it's a really good reminder for us to keep God's perspective on those things.
1: What I think, even in 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 the conversation, the dialogue that Solomon is having, having, he he's finding it, drawn back to that simple truth. I mean, he says it in, at the very end of it, right? And so I was even going to say when you when the ver, first eleven verses of Ecclesiastes, you'll see a parallel to the end in chapter twelve about the whole idea of remembrance. But mm-hmm. um, but I think he's drawn the conclusion and drawing the the parallel to the idea that apart from God, all of this is meaningless. And so that, that's where that joy foundation is. It's its its what we would call like a, an absolute truth that we hold to, a, a theological truth um, that is interwoven throughout the, the entirety of scripture. Um, but there's just that foundation too.
0: Yep. And you'll, know, you'll also notice this section is, it looks different because it's like a poetic section. So some, and that's one thing that's kind of interesting about Ecclesiastes is it goes from poetry to prose, to poetry, again, there's not really one consistent way that it's written, so it keeps it interesting. Uh, Moving forward, Solomon reflects on the immutability and the sovereignty of God. Um, Immutability means unchanging nature. So God doesn't change. Um, Life is ever changing in in one sense. In the other sense, like you said, it's kind of just kind of this big circle. Um, God, however, does not change. Right after this, he closes out chapter three with the reflection on the fleeting nature of life, uh, which is where we get the famous dust to dust. So that is what... Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Yep. And essentially it's this whole idea of Adam is created out of the dust and when we die... We returned it to us. Yep, that is cool, Solomon. Thanks for the (laughs) thanks for the cheery, thanks for the cheery thing. Uh, Chapter four speaks to the hopelessness that often accompanies seeing oppression in the world. So it's kind of this idea of being overwhelmed by the wickedness that we see in others, the way that humans can treat each other. Um, Solomon talks about how yeah, like when you look out and you see that, it it, it creates these feelings of hopelessness, um, which is something actually that. We'll talk about next week because Jeremiah wrestles through it and also Habakkuk wrestles through it, right? With this whole idea of like, how long, like, Lord, how long are you going to let this happen? Yep. Solomon's wrestling through the same thing here. Uh, he also goes back to the theme of the vanity of toil. So apparently Solomon just didn't really want to work hard. So he gets that twice. <laughs> he didn't have to. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and then there's also a reflection on it's better to be, and I, I like this, it's better to be young, wise, and poor than to be old, rich, and foolish. So hmm. there you go. For all you, old rich fools (laughs) or you young wise, I don't know what Poor people. Poor people. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It's not all bad. (laughs) Uh, Chapters five and six are a reminder to fear God and obey the law. And then it moves into the dangers of vanity and wealth, which is something Solomon is going to know a lot about. Um, and it speaks to the stress of wealth as well as the nature of never being satisfied by it, which so I think is true. yeah. And that's a thing where that is so applicable today. Where I think if if money is your main thing, if material gain is your main thing. You're never going to reach a point You'll where never you're be satisfied. Yeah. You're never going to reach a point where it's like, ah, I've arrived. This is it. Like, no, it's, it's learning to be content with what you have. And it's not wrong to like, you know, make more money or whatever it is, but it's definitely making sure, is that what you're living your life for? Because yeah. if it is, it's not going to, it's not going to work out. Uh, chapter seven, contrasts wisdom with folly. So this is where I kind of get into like, it's so the point of Ecclesiastes. is not like, ah, who cares? <laughs> Like living wise is pointless. Like, no, they, there is points where he gets into it. So this is in chapter seven. It says, a good name is better than a precious ointment. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting for this is the end of all mankind and living it and the living will lay it to the heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness sadness. Of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud of spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Who? convicting one That's there. That's deep. Yep. Uh, say not where, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Another great also, Yep. Also who? Oh, <laughs> Solomon bringing the fire. Uh, wisdom is good with an inheritance an advantage to those who see the sun for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. So it's interesting because I've heard this, um, John, John Rich, who was the pastor here at the Grove when he did memorials, this is actually the passage he would use and which I always thought was really interesting because yeah, I've never heard any other pastor use it, but just the idea of living life with the end in mind and how, because it, because it, it, it feels, it feels really depressing when it says, you know, it is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. Because I don't know about you, if you invited me like, hey, Evan, take your pick. Hey, come to my house and grieve with me or hey, let's go have a party. Yeah, I'm I'm coming pro- to my party. Party sounds great. Let's yeah. do a party. Um, but I think it's it's really important to and we've talked about this on the podcast before, but we we don't really live with the fact that we that we're going to die yeah. in mind. And I think part of it is just it's just not so much a reality for us because of medical technology. And obviously like we all know we're gonna die. Like we're we're all gonna die, but it's no longer this thing that is kind of like just around the corner at any moment. And it's because it's shocking. It is deeply shocking to us when people die young. Whereas just a hundred years ago, it was like, yeah, that that happens. happens. It's sad, but it happens. Like that's kind of, you know what I mean? That's just kind of the way it is. And so I think for us, I've noticed it's it's reflected in in the way that we worship, in the the songs that we we use for worship. Um, If you go back 100 years, every single worship song has something about the end of life and about how we're going to the other side and living with the end in mind. Whereas today, it's very rare. There's some, but it's very rare that we actually sit and worship and we think about, um, God, how do I want the end of my life to be? When I look back on my whole life lived, what do I want that to be like? So it's, it's kind of interesting. And I think it is absolutely true when Solomon says, the wise live with that in mind, mm-hmm. the foolish do not. So some, some convicting words from Solomon there. Uh, later in chapter eight, Solomon begins sort of kind of a, a rapid fire of advice. So this is those who fear God tend to do better. So, yep, true. Uh, it is impossible for us to fully understand God's plans. So that's a big theme in a lot of the wisdom literature. That's basically the theme yep. of all of Job, uh, Psalms. I I go to. I forgot. I always forget what Psalm it is. But the the Lord sits high in the heavens and does what he pleases. <laughs> like that is very much. <laughs> that is what it's talking about. Uh, another piece is uh, death is coming for everyone. So yay! <laughs> so cheer, cheerful there. Uh, and then the last one is enjoy life with your spouse, which I think is also really good advice. Basically, basically, yeah, amen. They <laughs> basically it's just saying, hey, don't yeah, don't like enjoy. Um, love, enjoy being in love, enjoy living with your spouse. Cause eventually, and, and this is where I think it is a little bit sad, but like, cause eventually that's going to come to an end. Yep. Uh, so enjoy what while you have it. Uh, 923 begins a long section returning to the theme of wisdom being better than folly. So this is where, and this this kind of takes us almost all the way through the end of the book, not quite, but almost there. Um, And then chapter 11, I put, it gives us a metaphor that's super fun because we have no idea. (laughs) And this is true. It's so true. We we were talking about that for a a few months ago, we had a question come in about um, Elkanah and why am I forgetting Samuel's mother's name? Hannah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Where some translations say that he didn't give her anything. Yeah, And then some translations say that he gave her a double portion. And so we looked into it. Wait a minute. And the reason we don't know is because the metaphor is literally, he gave her a portion of two faces and we don't know what that means. So yeah. some people translate it as two faces, like two mouths to feed. So it's more. And some of it translated as two faces as in like being two faced. And so he didn't give her anything. And so that is some of the difficulty with Bible translation is some of the... Um, Some of the words, we actually know exactly what all the words mean, but we take for granted how much of language is metaphor, even today, the way that we speak so much of it is metaphor. And so in this section, I just think it's interesting because it says, cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. No idea. Who knows? You don't understand that? Just kidding. <laughs> uh, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind and snow and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So there you go. He who observes the wind will
1: not sow. <laughs> will not sow. Sorry. He said snow. I said snow. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's It's a... because Evan's dreaming of a winter wonderland. <laughs>
0: I'm dreaming of, I'm not going to sing cause I'm bad at it. But yeah. So it's just kind of, it's just interesting idea. That's true. Uh, when I was looking into <laughs> the metaphor, it was talking about, is it like, maybe it's maritime trade. So this idea of like, oh. you're hmm. like sending off bread to be traded for other things. Um, It's Yeah, because the idea of obviously it's not exactly true that if you throw bread into water, you'll find it again in a few days and it's going to be great. So it's kind of, yeah, it's a curious metaphor. We don't know exactly what it means, but there you go. Finally, in chapter 12, Solomon brings it all to a close with his two final pieces of advice. And, And this is kind of just a sum up. The first one is to remember your creator in the days of your youth. So in other words, don't waste chasing or don't waste your life chasing after fleeting things um, like a certain king we may know. <laughs> so <laughs> Interesting. I, think, I think this is very much Solomon telling people do not make the same mistakes yeah. I did. Well,
1: and that's the tag of remember, uh, even at the very beginning, when you talk about the whole at the end of chapter or verse 11, the idea of remembering uh, that no one remembers. I believe if that was what it was. Um, There's no remembers of former things, nor will there be any remembers of later things yet to come after those Who come among those who come after, Mm -hmm. Um, and so there is this tag of remembering. Like I think that that's a a pretty big part of of living with the end in mind. You've also got like at the end of the day, and all of these things that he's pursuing that are vanity. It's it's remember the creator in the days of your youth. It's that foundational truth that I think is he's he's understanding now. So yeah, and in our youthfulness, we're not always that aware. So
0: well, yeah, I think there's uh, speaking of (laughs) it's a wonderful life. It just makes me think of when uh, um, the old guy in the in the ledge of the house is trying to get George and Mary to kiss. And then like, they're like, like, oh, I don't I don't know. And he just like throws up his hands. He's like, youth is wasted on the young. Um, But it also reminds me of, and you might know this, Aaron, uh, there was an interview that Troy Aikman did. And he was talking about how, if you don't know this listeners, Aaron is a Cowboys fan. Let's go. But he was talking about how- <laughs> Shout he, out to all
1: my Texas friends.
0: He really felt like When he finally started to understand the game of football and fully wrap his mind about it is when his body started to go. And he was kind of lamenting this idea of he never really had a point where he was at his peak physical abilities, but also his peak mental abilities. Mm -hmm. And so it is kind of this idea of like, yeah, there's this natural progression of we're young, we're dumb. And then as we get older, we begin to realize, you know, all the things of the past. So it, that's just always stuck with me. I thought it was a yeah. really interesting thing to say.
1: I don't remember that interview, but I i mean, it's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he's even a brilliant mind when it comes to the game now. I mean, listen to him commentate. I enjoy it. I if, know you're, if you're don't. a Buck
0: and Aikman guy.
1: Um, I like Aikman more than I like Buck. But um, yeah, I remember the interview a little bit. I don't remember the interview, but I, like the, the phrasing, the statement makes total sense. Because I feel that now, even at being, you know, I'm, I'm turned 39 this year. Like there's things in... In hindsight, I was like, man, if only I would have known that when I had the stamina and the energy to do these things or yeah. to, to lead in this capacity. Like there's just those things.
0: So. Well, I always tell people, cause I, yeah, I'm 29. And like, if I could go back in time and see 19 year old me, I would just punch him in the face
1: <laughs> and be like, what are you doing? You mean what I want to do 10 if, years ago? Fair no, enough. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding.
0: But yeah. And then I'm sure like, you know, 19 year old me goes back to like 15 year old me is like slap him around. Like, what do you, like, it's just kind of, and yeah. I'm sure 39 year old me will look back at 29 year old me and want to punch me.
1: In the so I, you're saying I should punch you in the face now so that way 10 years from now you can be like, Aaron, thank you. What I'm saying is- <laughs> I'm just kidding. You should,
0: if you are, if I've never met you before, you should just dress up to look vaguely like me, find me in the street, and then just slap me in the face and then just say, you'll know in 10 years, <laughs> and then just walk away and I'll be just in shock. Uh, then do will <laughs> believe in time travel. Anyway, yeah. So the final, the final piece of advice that Solomon gives is this, uh, and this is Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, hmm. whether good or evil.
1: So there there you go. That's, that's just good even now. Like yeah. Even, and I, I don't know how many times I've read Ecclesiastes, but that's just good even now. Um quick quick side note the whole cast your bread in the water thing. Let's hear it. Um it it seems to have a it's like a metaphor of being generous, like to give freely, to take risks and give generously without expecting much in return. Cause if you cast bread and water, what happens? Ducks. You're not going to get much in return, right? Oh, sure. You're not going to take it back and eat soggy bread unless you like soggy bread, which I'm not a fan of it. I like bread pudding. bread pudding. Yeah. Bread pudding's good. Um, so that's the, I think that that could very well be some of the meaning there too, is a metaphor for generosity. Um, so there's that little interesting side note, too. You learned something new. Um, as we shift and get ready to talk about the book of John, which we're starting this week, we'll finish up next week as well. Uh, I just want to stop and ask and take a moment, and ask you to, to leave a review if you haven't yet, uh, preferably of the five-star variety. Uh, we are very thankful for those of you who have already left reviews and ratings, uh, primi- primarily on the, pod- the Spotify and Apple podcast platforms. Uh, that's where the most Um, engagement happens and we're able to have more engagement. And so we would love for you if you're on Apple Podcasts, to leave us a review uh, because you can do a written review as well on Spotify, leave a five-star rating. We talked about it last week, but this quest to 100 is, is kind of intriguing. Uh, so we're I know we're there. sitting at 87 in Apple uh, Podcasts, and we're at 92 right now as of the recording of this podcast today in Spotify. So we're getting really close. It's kind of really fun to see that. Uh, I just think it's a fun milestone. So would love for you to leave us a review. Thank you ahead of time. Uh, and we will read your rating or review if you write one on Apple Podcasts, just because Evan would say that's the kind of guys we are. Yeah, so we're just good guys. So we're going to start the book of John this this week, as well as Ecclesiastes. Actually, we start and finish Ecclesiastes. We're just starting the book of John. We're taking half of it. Um, and the way, uh, I'll get to this in a second, as far as how the, the breakdown of the book is composed. It's pretty remarkable to think about. Um, but it is written by John, the disciple John. Uh, and I read this, and I I don't know if I ever realized this, but it was prefer- probably written between 70 AD and 100 AD. So around the destruction of the temple in between that point or the end of John's life, there's no real other indication as far as with the timeline except that larger window of time. Yeah. Um, but it was there is not really any dis- or re- dis- dispute about who the author is. This is the the beloved disciple, which we'll get to at the end.
0: Well, it uh, is kind John. of it is kind of interesting too because I was thinking I never thought of this before until you said that. But there is it's interesting to parallel this with Ecclesiastes because they're both written by men at the end of their lives and yeah. it's kind of, what do they want to get over? And so Solomon's is just looking back and like, what a freaking waste this has been. And then when John's looking back on his life, what's he thinking about? He's thinking about the three years he spent with Jesus. Yeah. It's kind, of, it's, it's kind of a cool thing to look at
1: it's through, through that lens. Shoot. Um Yeah. So this is written by John. I think it's a really good thought, really good point. Uh, I say shoot because I'm like, man, I got to remember to do more of that. Um, The theme of the entire book, uh, every gospel is going to have a a purpose for its writing um, and they're going to have a very specific aspect of of Christ, uh, of Jesus and his divinity, his messiahship. Um, John is very much uh, focused on the fact that God, God's promised Messiah is Jesus, uh, that Jesus is the son of God. Um, and that by believing in Jesus, people can have eternal life. That's where we get the famous, you know, probably one of the most famous passages in Scripture in all of the all of the world. Most famous is John three sixteen, um, and so John is very passionate about helping his audience understand that Jesus is the, the Messiah promised by God. Um, he's writing to both Jews and Gentiles in mind, um, living in the larger Greco-Roman world. So the culture there. Um, is is predominantly greco-roman uh but the thing that i love about john and this is actually probably one of my still one of my favorite books of the bible uh mainly because i took a class at northwest that just just transformed my understanding of it i love this book so much um but it's interesting and i think part of the reason why i like it because i would often refer to it as well when it comes to someone who's a first-time follower of christ uh well where do i start i often push people to the book of john um and I've, I've heard other people push the book of Mark because it's shorter. So actually he's speaking, and Mark is writing to, if I remember correctly, more of a Gentile audience, mm-hmm. um, but he's also taking a very short approach, a very fast approach to Jesus's life to understand who he was, what he came to do, and how to live in light of that. Um, John is taking a very strategic approach to help his listeners understand the fulfillment of scripture that talks about Christ being the Messiah. Um, well, I think there's also just this, in a way, m- and this is obviously
0: this is a broad generalization, so it's not like, you know, 100% true on on both sides. But Mark and the Synoptic Gospels are very concerned with what Jesus did. Mm-hmm. John is very concerned with who Jesus is. Yes. And so you're kind of getting to know, in, in the Gospel of John, you're getting to know Jesus, the person, m- I would say much better
1: than you do in the Synoptic Gospels. Yeah, I think that's a good point too. And I love that because John's concern is so 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 strong there that he actually, you'll see that he's going to be explaining a lot of Jewish customs. He's going to be explaining the Palestinian geography. He's going to translate Aramaic terms into Greek, um, because he's showing a lot of awareness to non-Jewish readers. Um, and in John, you see his audience, uh, he's writing to a very Greek philosophical world because of that Greco Roman culture. So he, he even starts off the book, which I want to read here in a minute, um, that is talking about, jesus being at the very beginning and he, because he's writing to an audience that's very stoic that the early gnosticism is starting to show up mm-hmm. uh, and so john's writing to an audience where he's just trying to bring awareness and understanding of jesus being the messiah and showing how he fulfilled the promises of that uh, and so that's that's the that's the heartbeat. That's the purpose with which John is writing. Uh, if we were to break down the book, uh, it breaks down and I would suggest in four easy sections. I stole this from the ESV, but I align with it pretty, pretty strongly. Uh, he starts off with a prologue, uh, which is the first 18 verses of it, which I'm going to read because I think it's really important to set the stage for the book. Uh, then he hits a second section, which is like a fast run through of Jesus's ministry, um, signs of the Messiah. It shows his work, his heart, his purpose. Uh, and that's the first half of the book, which we're going to cover this week. Convenient. The, yeah. The next half, of, it's actually pretty, uh, I saw it as like, yes, that's easy. Um, next week, we'll actually talk more about the second half of the book um, and a quick little uh, segue or a lead up for next week. It covers like the last full week of Jesus's life, the last half of the book. So the first half of the book covers like three plus years of Jesus' life. The last half of the book covers like a week plus of Jesus' life it's before kind of, his death and resurrection. It's kind of like Genesis in that
0: way, where the yep. first half of it covers like hundreds and hundreds yes. of years. And then the second half then of it slows
1: way down. It's just
0: like, yeah, it's Abraham yep. and his grandkids.
1: Yep. Yeah, <laughs> it's so true. Uh, And so just following this breakdown, we're going to cover those first two sections today, the prologue, which is chapter one, verses one through 18. Uh, This is where John uh, just in essence, really point blank says that Jesus is the incarnate word. Um, We'll see John, John the Baptist presents Jesus as the eternal one. He talks about the preexistence uh, and now the incarnate word uh, as the one of a kind son of a father who is himself God. That's John's prologue here. So I want to read it. Uh Evan likes to read the end of a chapter or end of a book. And when it comes to prophets, I'll read the beginning to because this is John's this is his intro to the entire into his entire gospel. I was going to say letter but gospel. You could
0: almost call it like his thesis statement if this if this was an essay, this is
1: his thesis page. (laughs) Thesis page yeah he's getting out
0: this is, these are my, yep. this is the core of what is about you, of what you're about to read.
1: Yeah. So it says this in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. You know, it's a parallel back to Genesis yep. when G, when God created, he said in the beginning. Uh, and so John's paralleling that in the beginning, nothing existed, but Jesus and God. And, and like, he's implying that so in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He was God in the beginning, was with God in the beginning. All things are created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. There's moments I get a little bit like brain tied and, and tweaked because he, the way he writes sometimes kind of jumbles and moves my brain. I have to slow down sometimes and read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's presenting this and he says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and yet darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He's not talking about himself, by the way, not yet, at least. Uh, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming to the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified, referring to John the Baptist, concerning Him, and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I'm said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me, because He existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from His fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who Himself is God, Or who is himself God and is at the Father's side, for He has revealed Him. And so I love that what John is doing is he's presenting the very beginning of validation and truth of who Jesus is. He is the fulfillment of the promise. He was the in the beginning. He is the fulfillment. And even if you notice the word the the word word uh, and verse one is capitalized, there's a reason for that because it's alluding to who Jesus is. It's identifying Jesus Himself. And so you see this prologue opening up. And John, in essence, laying it out there to a, a very clear audience, a very specific audience to understand this is who Jesus is from the very beginning. Well, and you've said too that,
0: you know, John is, he's writing to both Jews and Gentiles. He's writing to, to Israelites and Greeks here. And you see that in the first word, right? in the first sentence, because um, in the beginning, you would recognize that as a, like that. Those, yeah, as, are, as a
1: Jewish audience, you would recognize you that.
0: You'd be like, oh, Okay. Got it. Like, like yeah. that. This is what's happening here. Um, but like you said, the word "word" there is, is, logos. is logos. Logos. Yep. And it's this. It's this idea that the Greeks had of this eternal underpinning logic that was at the core mm-hmm. of the universe, and that is what drove everything. It was kind of like a pseudo god, I suppose, is kind of a way. It a, a way to yeah, describe. Yeah, that's it. a good way to say it. So in the first sentence, John is bringing in the Jews and the Greeks with one line, and both of them would hear. Both of them would hear different things but both of them would be immediately entranced, I guess, by yeah. they, they, they're tracking it. They're, yeah.
1: they're literally brought into, brought together to then understand and begin to understand what, what John is saying. Yeah. And it just shows the brilliance. I, I think, and obviously he's inspired by the Holy spirit to write these words, to pen these words, but it just shows the brilliance and the intentionality of John's desire that people would know who Jesus is. And I think that's, that's so profound and brilliant. I love it. Um, so, and that's, that's the first section. That's the prologue. Um, the, the second the second section here is where we just see, I mean, this is where John begins to to write out about Jesus's life, but he's really writing from a perspective. Of he wants to show that these are the signs of the Messiah, that Jesus's life, the things that he does, they reflect and and, and back the truth that he is the Messiah, as John says he is. Um, it'll focus on Jesus's demonstration uh, of the acts that he is the Messiah uh, and a bunch of different signs that he does. Um. And so just a, a very quick, I do love this, and I'll be honest with you, um, after we see this John the Baptist quick hit in this section, you actually get the first actual week broken down of Jesus. I never, I've never noticed this before, so I stole this from ESV Study Bible because that's <laughs> one of the things I use, but you see the first week of Jesus's ministry uh, of how he, after he Burst onto the scene, so to speak, that leads up to his first miracle, which is the wedding uh, at Cana, where he turns water into wine. Uh, But you see, uh, as John the Baptist being the witness, uh, and the first week of Jesus' ministry, here's the first week, like the first day, day one. You see John the Baptist witness concerning Jesus, uh, where he says, "Hey, here's here's the Lamb of God." Uh, Day two, you see John the Baptist's encounter with Jesus then you'll see John the Baptist in day three referral to his disciples to Jesus. Um, so in other words, the first half of the week is just validating John validating everything of who Jesus is. You see day four, Andrew's instruction of his brother, Peter to Jesus, like, Hey, come see who we've found day five. You see the recruitment that Jesus has the first few disciples that follow him of Philip and Nathaniel day six. We don't have any idea of what happened. Then. <laughs> so maybe it was a day of rest. Um uh, and then day seven is this first miracle where his mom comes to him and says, "Hey, they're running out of wine." And Jesus' response, is like, "Woman, the time is not. My time has not come yet." And then he obeys his mom, uh, and so he has the the servants at a wedding who are running out of wine. And typically, the way that weddings worked back in ancient times, they'd have the better wine at the very beginning of the wedding, and then as everyone kind of got drunk, uh, they would pull out the cheap stuff. And even in that process, they were running out of wine. And so Jesus's mom shows up to Jesus at this wedding feast says, Hey, they're running out of wine. So it already shows you that, that Mary knew the mother of Jesus knew what Jesus could do. Jesus, he, Mary knew that Jesus was capable of doing something significant and miraculous. And I almost wonder, like, as I stop and think, like, I just wonder like, what was her, what, what brought her to that point? Like, obviously the immaculate conception, like I get all of that, but that's there's a just, big one. It's it's an interesting thing, right? Where Jesus is like, he can do anything. Hey, they're running out of wine. Don't let don't let the 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 wedding the bride party be in dishonor because they ran out of wine. Um, so there's something very significant here. And So Jesus then puts has the servants fill uh, these 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 big clay pots with water and pulls out a cup, brings it to the the head person and or one of the the guests of honor. And gives them, and it turns into wine. And the guest of honor says, That's the best wine. Uh, normally, people save it till the end or put it at the beginning, but you saved it for the end. So,
0: mm-hmm. well, it, it, going back to the Mary thing for a second, because like, how did she get there? I think sometimes we take for granted how radical the incarnation is. Oh, that's true. Um, for sure. And so, because I think you, what well, even what you say, like when Jesus. I don't remember if it's in John or not, but he says, who do do people say that I am? And they're like, oh, yeah, like you're Elijah reincarnated or Elijah brought back from heaven because he never died, all those different things. Um, And so it's it's not hard for the Jews to wrap their minds around the idea that Jesus is a prophet of some kind, um, that Jesus has been um, given a task by the Lord to complete and is being validated through miracles. Um, But the idea that he's God incarnate, that is like... And that, and that's not just a hard thing for the Jewish mind to wrap around. So I don't think there's any other parallel in any sort of um, religion or mythology. Because hmm. the the closest thing you see is the gods kind of pretend to be human for a little bit. Yeah. And so, like you know, like you see like Zeus, his whole thing is he just sleeps with every woman in Greece, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, like the whole thing is like they they pretend to be humans for a little while, but then they go back. They go back to Olympus. They were never actually humans. They just kind of. Pretended to be. Yeah, they put on that raiment, I suppose you could call it. Um, cr- like the, the whole idea of like Yahweh, God, creator of the universe, the the sun becoming man, like fully becoming man is crazy. And so I, I in, in the one sense... We kind of look back on them and we say, like, oh yeah, obviously, guys, how are you not getting this? Yeah. I right. would I don't think I would have gotten like that, that. would have been I still wrestle at times with it, right? I, I mean Yeah. I bet you I would have been James, where like the whole time I'm just like, Yeah, this isn't real. And then all of a sudden, like like the the resurrection oh. and the like glorification of Christ. And I and I feel like that's where I would finally be like, Oh, I get it now. And oops. that's to my detriment. But yeah, like I, for sure. I I think that's, you know, we 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 sometimes give
1: ourselves too much credit on the other side oh, of Christ man. for this. So true. So true. Uh, and so, yeah. So in this, I mean, in this major section, John starts off creating this the, the, the platform that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and he sees that, we see that through... John's account of John the Baptist affirmation encounter, uh, and even referring his disciples to Jesus, uh, which is a big deal too. Back then you don't, you don't trade disciples. You don't suggest to your disciples, Hey, that person's better than me, um, because you want to keep those, those who are following you. Uh, and then it, it culminates the first week, uh, with that first miracle that Jesus performs in the gospel of John. Um, and it continues in as John is trying to continue to reveal the signs of, of who Jesus is the Messiah uh, he, John shifts into chapter 2 uh, verse 12 to chapter to, to, through chapter four uh, it starts revealing some of Jesus's ministry in Jerusalem you'll see him in Judea Samaria you'll also see him at the Gentiles uh, to the Gentiles as well that there's the ministry where Jesus is beginning to walk out his call as the Messiah uh, to bring the truth of who he is to to the world as he knows it, uh, so that way everyone can believe in him, Uh, and so you'll see his Jerusalem ministry commences with him clearing the temple, Uh, then John, and this will bring us to two major encounters, one with Nicodemus, uh, who is a religious leader, uh, and then the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, where it's this woman at the well, uh, which is familiar for many of us if we've been in church for a while, uh, but the woman goes to get water in the middle of the day, which is not normal um, because it's hot, and so people... In ancient times, because of the weather, they would do a lot in the morning. They take a break during the hottest part of the day and stay inside, stay in the shadow, in shadows, so they can keep cool, so they don't have to deal with the heat as much. And then they would work in the evening until nighttime. Um, so this woman comes out in the middle of the day while Jesus is journeying. He stops at a well, has this incredible encounter. It's it's incredible to see you know Jesus in that moment talking to a Samaritan woman. There's a couple uh, hurdles there, culturally speaking. One that he would even talk to a woman. Two that she would be a Samaritan. Jews viewed Samaritans as half breeds. They were racist towards Samaritans. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this deal where Jesus engages with this woman. Uh, And so you see this as a major story. Nicodemus is a major story because we're going to find here in a little bit that there's just this opposition between the Jewish leaders, Pharisees, we already know, right? Uh, But this is where you begin to see it in this next section unfold. Uh, But he deals with Nicodemus, Nicodemus. Uh, finds faith in Christ. Um, and then there's an unknown, unnamed uh, Gentile official that Jesus then heals his son. Um, and he says, Jesus, come heal my son. He's near death. Um, and and he's begging and pleading. And Jesus says, go home. Your son's going to be well. He goes home, finds out from his servant that his son is well. Well, when did he become well? Oh, about the seventh hour, I think is what it says. Um, and that's when the Gentiles like, that's exactly when Jesus told me to go home. Uh, and so there's this incredible moment with the Gentile official as well. Uh, and so that that it, John is beginning to unpack his ministry journey uh, to validate his the signs that he's done, doing to show that he's the Messiah. Uh, you see in chapter five, it starts the you see the, the mounting Jewish opposition begin to start. Uh, and from fr- chapter five all the way to, through chapter 10, you see this tension of the Jewish uh, leaders and religious leaders beginning to oppose, beginning to be frustrated. And you see this continual battle that they're going to be in that culminates in the final moment um, that I'll get to uh, where Jesus is then wanting to be, uh, they want Jesus to die is what it comes down to. And it actually culminates in Lazarus, uh, his death, and then Jesus bringing him back to life. Um, So we see these different different situations arise, um, in, in the book of John here. Um, it's, it's actually also in a, in a cycle of festivals where you see Jesus interacting, which is why there would be so many religious leaders, which is why there'd be so much, uh, opposition because these cycle, these festivals are in the old Testament. The Jewish leaders are establishing cycles of festivals to be able to worship God, to reflect on God. But they also took it a little bit further to be able to stroke their own egos. Um, and so the conflict escalates because Jesus is reestablishing. I mean, we've even seen this and we'll see it in the last supper where Jesus takes the the, the last supper, the Passover, and then realigns it to him, um, which is a significant moment, but we won't talk about today. Uh, but it is a very significant moment in the gospels where Jesus is taking all of what the Passover was and then attaching it directly to him. He's saying, it's now reflecting me. That's why he says, do this in remembrance of me. So there's these these festivals that are happening. Jesus is establishing himself. Uh, We see uh, Jesus citing even several witnesses that would affirm his messiahship, referring to John the Baptist, Jesus' own words, God the Father's response, the scriptures, especially regarding Moses. Uh, Jesus himself affirms who he is. The spirit will validate who he is. Uh, And then his disciples will also affirm that, especially John, uh, the disciple here. Uh, It's also fun because this is where we see in this section where you see this mounting opposition, but you also see Jesus's uh, this first of seven of his I am statements that go from chapter six all the way to chapter 15. Uh, Where you see him talk about himself being the bread of life. You talk about, he says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Uh, I'm the resurrection of life. I'm the way, the truth and life. I'm the true vine. Uh, He makes these declarations that each and of, not each and of, but each one of themselves is pretty poignant and powerful to reveal another attribute and characteristic of the Messiah and who he is. Um, So you see that tension, you see that created in this moment, you see in this section, that's where they begin. Uh, And we get four out of the seven in in this one section alone. Um, There's this interesting interaction, and this is just to, to paint the picture of this opposition that exists between Uh, Jesus and these religious leaders, Um, there really is a, it's interwoven throughout this entire section, but I thought this one was probably the most uh, blunt and poignant um, because it it affirms, it challenges the religious leaders in their identification as God's people. Uh, And so it says this in chapter eight, verse 36 to 47, Um, it's, it's Jesus talking about freedom. He says, so if the son sets you free, you will really be free. And then he says this, I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you're trying to kill me because my word is no place among you. Which that that's a big deal. Religious leaders are the ones that are supposed to be helping prepare the way for the coming Messiah, but we know this in hindsight, right? They missed it, uh, and so he says, "Because my word has no place among you, I speak what I have seen the presence of the Father. So then, you do what you have heard from your father." He's contrasting the fathers there. Oh, our father is Abraham. They replied, "If you were Abraham's g- children," Jesus told them, "You would do what Abraham did, but now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God." Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. And then they say, we weren't born of sexual morality. They said, we are, We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I'm here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you li- cannot listen to my word. You are of the father, you're, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's word. words. That is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. That's a very poignant, powerful, mm-hmm. direct statement to these religious leaders. These are leaders, again, who are, who are supposed to be leading the people of Israel in preparation and attention and awareness of the coming Messiah. They have bought into specific lies that talk about, and, and in essence, they've missed it because of the lies they have believed. because they are not establishing rituals or traditions from God's purposes and God's will. Uh, and so that, so this is the, this is for me, one of the, one of the peaks of the tension and the opposition that create is created between Jesus and these religious leaders.
0: Well, I think there's also this, they're falling into the same trap that their ancestors fell into just in a different way. And so it reminds me of, I forgot which gospel it is. I think it's Mark where they talk about, it's this conversation. Um, but in Mark, it records that Jesus tells them that, you know, don't don't take such pride in the fact that you're sons of Abraham, because like, yeah. and he points over to some rocks. he's like, I can make those rocks sons of Abraham, or God can take those stones and make them sons of Abraham. Um, but what do we see in the tail end of, judah's history and we'll actually get into this when we talk about jeremiah next week but it's this whole idea of having this faith of yeah we're god's chosen people like jerusalem is god's city obviously nothing bad is ever going to happen to it and what do you see with the pharisees here it's like yeah we're god's chosen people like obviously like this is gonna like this is going to go well for us and so it's a different way because they're they are to to give the pharisees their what little credit they deserve, they are trying. <laughs> they are trying to follow what they believe to be God's commands are. Yes. For the for most of them are, um, but they're they're getting so wrapped up into this idea of like, yes, we are the pure ones, we are God's chosen people, and they're missing this. Just like the ancient Judans missed the idea that no, this doesn't have to be this way. Like I can break this, and Jerusalem can be destroyed. The Pharisees are missing the idea that no, it doesn't have to be this way the gospel is about to go out to the Gentiles and yeah. the the idea of God's people being one specific race and nation is, is about to be gone.
1: Yeah. And that, and that's I, to the, I mean, to their credit, that's hard to even comprehend. Right. Right. When, when we grow up in a system or a culture, like even in, in my own life, there's things that I've, I've grown up in that I, it's hard to unlearn them, but you've have to unlearn them. Um, and so with the religious leaders, like Jesus is confronting everything that they believed in. Now, not everything they believed in is wrong, but when it comes to the practices, sometimes when it comes to the execution or what comes to leading them to have this prideful mentality, that they are they are the chosen people. It That's where there's this issue. And Jesus is just trying to create bridges. Um, we see this. I mean, I, again, not to get ahead, but. Even in the last supper, there's very significant moments where Jesus point blank is extending grace, extending an, uh, a, a morsel uh, for the hope to draw Judas back in his, his int- attempt here is I would, maybe I'm wrong here. His intent is not to, to totally shut down and kill him or move on or say, you're not worth it. It's trying to expose the lie that they believe where they believe where that lie is coming from so they can re-anchor to truth. Right. Th- that God, Jesus's heart has always been reconciliation and redemption. He didn't come to the world John 3:17 to condemn the world that, but all the but through him all the world might be saved. So there is that that reminder we have to remember. But this is a very direct statement of opposition that Jesus has with the religious leaders. You look like you yeah, had something else you want to say.
0: Oh, no. I oh. well I was I was going to reflect on this I I couldn't really figure out a way to work it in, but I was Now you can. Uh, there you go. This is random. I was just thinking when you said it would be an incredibly hard thing for them to wrap their minds around. I was thinking, I was trying to do the math in my head of how long had they been God's chosen people. Hmm. Right. And so I think if I'm doing this correctly, it was for like 2,500 years. So basically (laughs) like, huh? Yeah. So basically since the, uh, man, I'm trying to like actually place this in history, but for us, it would be the equivalent of, I think that's about like, that's the post-exilic period. So basically from like from Ezra to uh to now is how long the these Pharisees would have known that they were God's chosen people. So and I think sometimes in the in the in the US specifically, we just don't have a great grasp of history because our history is so recent. Yeah. And so like when we think of things like when we think of our founding fathers and things that are old, we think we're thinking back like 250 years. We're not thinking, um, thousands of years, like so many other nations of the world do. Yeah. And so I think for for them, this is not just like, yeah, it's been this way for a while. No, it's been this way for as, a long while, <laughs> like generations yeah. upon generations yeah. upon generations.
1: But I think in that though, too, we can, we can begin to understand and maybe even have a little empathy um, where yes, our history as Americans has only been 250-ish years. But even in that, we have certain ideas and, and concepts or thoughts mm-hmm. that the U S is one of the, the, the major world powers that we are the greatest nation in the world. Um, you're darn right. When, and it's, and, and again, I want to be careful because I'm not trying to drive into like a political, uh, dialogue, but what it is, like we have these ingrained ideas about how great of a superpower militarily speaking, we are in comparison to the rest of the world. and, Take that even that little like minutia that little simple thought and that little minuscule thing, and you we can begin to see, oh man yeah that that's that's possible it, it's 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 not it's not hard to see where the drift could come and how far it would be off, so all of that to say, Jesus is confronting the very lie that they are better than everyone else that God is going to establish only they have not remained faithful. They've go through all of Israel's history. There's not, there's been a, a greater cycle of disobedience and rebellion than there has been obedience and faithfulness. And so Jesus is here to bring redemption, all of humanity together. Um, so that's, that's, that's all to say, like there is massive opposition that we're going to see in that second part of, of the maj- second major section. Um, we, it brings us to, John brings us to the final Passover um the ultimate sign and then the aftermath of this ultimate sign um th- the final ultimate sign of Jesus Messiahship in this gospel is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Uh this this is actually the miracle was only recorded by the gospel of John uh and it also shows the anticipation of Jesus own resurrection. You see this parallel as he calls forth Lazarus from the tomb, there is a, there is a parallel we can see um into Jesus own death and resurrection. Um he, this is also where Jesus reveals in, in, that he is the resurrection in life, which is before he raises Lazarus. He he affirms and says, I am the resurrection alive." life. Um, and then he raises Lazarus, serves, it's the final event triggering the Jewish leaders resolve to have Jesus arrested and tried. Um, and in this section here, when it comes to the final Passover, you'll see that Lazarus died. Jesus claims to be the resurrection alive. One of the easiest verses in all the Bible to memorize is John eleven thirty five 35, that Jesus wept. Um, that's the verse, uh, but he sees Jerusalem and he, he weeps over Jerusalem because they are like a sheep without a shepherd. Uh, and so he laments in that moment, it, it seems that he laments in that moment, the wandering away of his people, uh, of, of God's people. And so he weeps over that, um, Lazarus has died before this, right? So then he is then brought to, he goes to the tomb where Lazarus was and he says, hey, move the tomb. Um, it's an incredible discourse, or discourse because people are like, hey, he's been dead for four days, um, which is final. Like there's a significance of the four days. Um, so then Jesus raises Lazarus. He comes forth. There's a big old feast that Lazarus was a part of. There's actually a gap between the feast and Lazarus' Lazarus's resurrection. Um, I guess that's one way to say it, right? Lazarus. Uh, but uh, so then, in that that feast, there is a Mary anoints Jesus, uh, Jesus feeding in Bethany. Um, before that, there was a plot coming out of Lazarus, how Lazarus being raised to life. Uh, this is where the leaders begin to say, you know what, we need to kill this guy, um, and so they plot to do that. Start thinking about how to do that. After the the meal, the feast, um, then uh, there's Greeks that showed up that wanted to be a part or wanted to, to spend time with Jesus. And because Lazarus was there, they showed up to see and be a part of the feast just to be present. And so then the religious leaders also thought, we also need to kill Lazarus, Uh, which I always forget about until I read the book of John, that not only was Lazarus raised from the dead, but he was also then plotted to be killed as well. Now, I don't recall that there's actually an experience, I don't think there is, of when Lazarus actually was killed or if he was killed. I think once they killed Jesus... They were satisfied. They didn't go after Lazarus to my knowledge. So. I
0: imagine when, when Lazarus died, he was like,
1: eh, big deal. <laughs> Been yeah. there. What else you got? <laughs> um, and so then it leads into the, the, the final moment of the triumphal entry. Uh, and so we'll see the final Passover leads us to uh, the la- death of Lazarus and the ensuing events, the feast lead us to the triumphal entry, uh, which then uh, the, you'll see the book, the chapters in the book slow way down to then capsulize in the next chapter, in the next section, uh, which we'll discuss next week uh, of the, the aftermath of the triumphal entry in the Passover. Uh, the one thing that I thought was interesting that I want to read is the approaching Gentiles uh, that came uh, and the Messiah, M- Messiah being rejected by the Jews. So the interesting thing here is um, John's wrapping up the section. We see Greeks come to see Jesus and Jesus in turn doesn't really talk to them um, because you see him recognize that he's not going to have a reach into the Gentile world until after his death and resurrection. So this sparks for him a very sorrowful moment. Uh, and I thought it was interesting to, to take a moment and read that. Um, and so it says this in John chapter 20, some Greeks uh, were among those who went up to worship at the festival. Again, we're in the, f- the, the cycle of festivals. Uh, so they came to Philip who was, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and requested him, sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus replied to them, And this is where the Greeks want to see Jesus. And no doubt the Greeks were interested to learn more from Christ about what he's been teaching about to talk more and to see some of the miracles. They wanted to see who this Messiah was. And so the Greeks come to Philip, Philip goes with Andrew, they go to Jesus and Jesus then replies to them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And, and one, if you take that sentence alone, it's like, oh yeah, he's going to, you know, he's going to be elevated in the Gentile world. And then, but that's not what he's talking about. He says this, truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit to the one who loves his life. He will lose it to the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am there. My servant will also be if anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, which so it's it, I'll stop for a second, because here's the interesting thing. Philip and Andrew say, Hey, Jesus, there's some, there's some people who want to see you. They want to talk to you. They want to, they want to, they want to hear from you. They want to know the, the, the truth that you've been talking about. They want to, they want to not validate your Messiahship, but they want to learn from you. They want to, they want to hear what you have been saying and teaching. Because at this point, obviously the, the news has spread about who Jesus, the things that Jesus does and the things that he says. And Jesus's response was, I got to die. When I die, Then I'm going to produce fruit and then the Gentiles be reached. That's the implication he's making here. And then it brings him to the point where he's then reflecting on what's coming. And he says, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice, and this is crazy. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, the voice came not for me, but for you. And then it continues on a little bit longer, but it's interesting to me where Jew or Greeks are showing up because they've heard about Jesus. John has taken a moment to say, Hey, Jesus is the Messiah. People are showing up, but then he Jesus' tune changed. And it's at a it's at a party as well. It's not a, a mourning, it's not a funeral procession. There's not mourning happening, uh, meaning grieving, but it's at a party where Greeks show up and say, Hey, we want to learn more about Jesus. And then Jesus shifts into this discord of my life is coming to an end. I have to die in order to reach the Gentiles. My life must be given as a ransom for them, uh, and that and that's where John ends, and that's where actually we're going to end this week, which then sets us up for the next week as we wrap up the book of John. But that that's kind of where we where we're left, where Jesus has been validated by John and his ministry as a messiahship for this large chunk of time, and then we shift into the final week ish of Jesus's life next week.
0: Ooh, teaser, fancy, love it. Uh, before we wrap up today. Quick, quick. Addendum, listeners. I checked the math while Aaron was talking. It was not 2,500 years. It was like 2,000 ish years, is how long the people of Israel have been around. So, not as you were close. Now, yeah, close. I, I don't feel too bad about yeah, that.
1: 2,500 to 2,000 and like trying to math in your head? In, in case well you, done, in sir. In
0: case you were going back and being like, wait a second. You I was, are a liar. Yeah, it was a little bit. I gave it like, That's awesome. I gave like an extra few centuries on that one. Well but done, sir. That wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove church you can check out our other resources on our website growth.church under the media tab and if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the growth church does you can also give online there's a give button in the upper right hand corner of the screen thank you all so much for listening and have a great day